Welcome to Forbidden News. I'm your host, Gary Bai. Happy Friday. We're joined by Dr. Chris Balding, economist and former professor at the Peking University HSBC Business School. Professor, great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me, Gary. So a scheme that we'll go back to is how the Chinese Communist Party is bending the rules. Now, you've spent quite a bit of time teaching business in China. So maybe we will uh, maybe give us an idea of how that works when it comes to going around the rules when doing business under the communist regime. So one of the things that I think is so interesting about uh, about studying the Chinese economy and financial markets is in a lot of Western markets, we we expect the rules to maybe be bent uh, sometimes, or uh, but I think most people generally, and you see this in. in throughout how people live their lives, um, we generally actually adhere uh, just as a, as, a, as a normal course of business um, to, to the rules. Um, whereas in China, it's almost a surprise if people uh, adhere to the rules. So when we talk about the rules of business in China, I think it's very uh, much more important to look at how firms and how the state behaves with regards to business rather than what the specific rules are. And, uh, you know, a joke that I always make to people is, is you would be much better served to understand how the Chinese business uh, environment works by watching mob movies than coming through Chinese law books. Um, that is that is much more uh, realistic understanding of, of how Chinese business works. So we're here to talk about a related topic, but it's perhaps the most important thing that couple the United States and China together. Uh, and it could be the cause for decoupling, which is money. But on this note, I quite want to start with an interesting story that some in the finance world would call disturbing. Um, on March 8th, the price of nickel doubled in an hour and the London Metal Exchange halted trading in response. This move was almost seen as unprecedented and appeared to favor a certain player over others. Now, you've been following this quite closely, so give us an overview of what you saw happen. Sure. So basically, what it what it happened is is a is uh, a very large nickel miner in China had been uh, taking a very large what we call short position, meaning that he was betting on the price of nickel falling, um, and this was well known throughout the throughout the nickel markets, um, and so ba basically people began purchasing higher levels of of nickels. And so around the time that there was uh, a contractually obligated uh, requirement to deliver physical amounts of metal, this is when the price of nickel started spiking in what we call a short, a short squeeze because there simply was not enough physical nickel available for delivery. And so people were piling into the market, uh, pushing the price higher. And this is what caused the price to spike very, very rapidly in such a short period of time. Now, where it becomes deeply problematic is during this time, the London Metals Exchange, which is owned by the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, which is owned by, uh, it's uh, basically controlled by the Hong Kong city government, who is run by the CCP, basically has shut down trading almost every day since. Um, there's been small amounts of trading. And not only that, they went back and uh, undid uh, a significant number of trades and even trades that have taken place since then. They, they've gone back and, and canceled those trades. And so this basically seems very, very clear that uh, the London Metals Exchange, basically at the behest of the CCP, is basically uh, manipulating the market to protect a specific player. Um, 
we, we, we generally accept that in markets, some people will make money, some people will lose money. Um, but it becomes deeply problematic when markets are so obviously um, protecting certain players in a market and causing uh, and causing others to lose money. It's kind of like if the referee of a, of a, of a soccer game or a basketball game was choosing who would win or lose the game. Um, that is the market players are uh, market referees. Uh, the markets themselves are, are supposed to be agnostic with regards to who wins and loses. And so th this this is deeply problematic when you think of the CCP basically owning markets in uh, in open democracies where th where this is not taking place. There's the old joke that uh, the Chinese markets were, uh, work upon the, the principle of heads I win, tails you lose. And that seems to be happening here. And so, uh, you know, on the building on the coin reference, they're, they're kind of two sides of the coin, right? One, um, actual honest investors would choose to stay away, uh, you would say, from, from a market like this one. And, but the other one, could this be some sort of a normalization of this behavior? It's going to be very, very interesting to see what happens going forward when you talk about if this behavior will become normalized. The banks and traders themselves uh, have already gathered their lawyers, and if litigation hasn't already been filed, I'm expecting um, litigation will be filed because there are billions of dollars in profits that were uh, that 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 some companies were going to receive that that you know they're not going to receive now because the 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 market stepped in and canceled the trades. Um, so it's going to be very very interesting the response of traders to uh, where they choose to take their business. Um, the, you know markets are relatively easy to set up, especially in today's day and age. Um, uh, you know, Chicago does a lot of commodities trading. New York does commodities trading. Um, London had somewhat of a specialized niche in, uh, in commodities trading. Um, but it was very, very lucrative and very, very sizable and liquid. Um, so more important, and it's simply too soon to tell is, um, how, uh, how market players will react. Will they go to other venues? Um, or will they stay in London? Um, it, it'd be very easy to say that uh, that they're going to switch, um, but we also see examples throughout history where there's some type of catastrophic event like this, and six months later, it's as it's as if nobody remembered what happened. Can you can you give us an example of this? Sure. So you know the, the most obvious example would be sovereign debt defaults, um, in the sense of you know I, I forget how many, but the 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 example that you use in the sovereign debt defaults is. Uh, is Argentina has defaulted on its sovereign debt? Uh, I, I forget how many times, but you know, almost like clockwork, uh, with such with such regularity. And yet, they're you know, a couple of years later, they're able to go back to the sovereign debt markets and borrow money again. Um, so it's it's simply going to be how do markets respond? Um, it, it's it's very very possible New York and Chicago. Um, see uh, see a real opening and say, let's take advantage of this. Uh, let's go take business uh, from from London. And people are so fed up and, and so worried about uh, the reliability of the London market that, that, that they do go elsewhere. But um, that's simply too soon to tell for sure. Right. So there is a possibility uh, then the market would just essentially play along with this, this kind of behavior. 
Yes, absolutely. Think of it this way. These firms that are trading in London, they, they are still going to want or need to trade. Okay. Um, that, that still is going to have to happen. Um, so where are they going to trade? There has to be a venue for that. So this is clearly an opening for uh, for Chicago or New York would be the two most obvious examples. Um, but again, it, it's 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 going to be: Do those firms make a play for London business? How how deep is the resentment in London towards the London Metals Exchange? Right, and going back to China, so. Its financial holdings in markets around the world is disproportionately small, at least on paper, compared to its economic size. And some observe that it's trying to expand its influence. With the, you know, for example, with the Hong Kong exchange's attempt to purchase the London Stock Exchange in 2019, albeit, you know, failed to do so. So do you think this would hinder the progress? Yes, absolutely. Because what you're, I mean, this is a lot of people I, I suspect simply hadn't considered that China would come in and basically just shut down a market, um, a, a financial market um, outside of China. Um, this had, you know, similar things had taken place in China before, but I don't think anybody had ever conceived that China would behave in such a manner uh, controlling markets outside of China. Um, and so I think to a degree, this is this has been a significant wake up call. Um, and I, sus I suspect that it's going to be very, very hard for London to come back um, from that loss of credibility. Um, but again, I think it's at the same time, I think it's way too soon to make any broad sweeping generalizations. Because the, the reason I wanted to touch on this story is that I think there's somewhat of a contradictory dichotomy that underlies the way CCP operates. Uh, in that one hand, it kind of seeks to earn more foreign capital by working closer with the Western market. But on the other hand, the regime is by nature manipulative and seeks to deepen its control. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? I think that's that's uh, very accurate. If, if we look at, uh, you know, uh, the London Metals Exchange example, you know, I think uh, Hong Kong purchasing the London Metals Exchange was seen as a as a as a good business decision by London, um, and the CCP was seen as uh, basically a, a distant relative of anything that was uh, that was going on with the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Now people are looking at that deal much much closer, saying, "Wait a minute, what did what exactly happened here? Why does the CCP get a role in dictating what days the market is open and what trades uh, get executed?" And so, when you talk about that that underlying perniciousness and that manipulative, uh, quiet nature, I think that is exactly what it, what has happened with London. And a lot of people are taking a second look, not just at that, but at a lot of other things, because this is such a stark example of how the CCP operates. And too many, um, you know, this would seem almost counterintuitive, counterintuitive or counterproductive. Um, do you see an inherent reason for this that's embedded within the Chinese communist system? or the mentality of the leadership of the system that would help explain this apparent paradox. So basically they are they are very aware that uh, people or institutions that uh, partner directly with the CCP um, that is going to raise red flags. 
However, this is why a lot of, for instance, donations that get made to universities, businesses that get uh, purchased overseas are done through shell companies, are done through frontmen, are done through uh, individuals with non-Chinese passports um, so that that money can still flow uh, effectively from the CCP but not be from the CCP. You know, one of my first years of graduate school in economics, uh, one of the points that was made by a professor is economics is the study of trade-offs. In everything you do, there is a trade-off, okay? Um, maybe you have a really well-paying job, but that means you can't take this other really well-paying job. Um, if you drive a Mercedes, you can't drive a BMW. Okay, you can't physically drive two cars at the same time. Okay, so even in good situations, there are always trade-offs, and so what we're seeing is is that uh, the CCP is exerting this control because they want a certain outcome, which is fine. But what happens is 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 similar to the individual that says, "I want to lose ten pounds, but I want to keep eating donuts." Okay, you know they want their economy to do well but they don't want to actually rein in the debt problem, okay? Well, you know, they can keep pushing enough debt so that their economy grows rapidly. That's a very plausible outcome. They cannot, simply by the laws of mathematics, have both a high-growth economy and no debt growth. They, that's, you know, it, it's, it's not going to happen. Um, and so they are trying to engineer outcomes without actually facing the law of trade-offs that we have simply as part of the human condition. That's a little bit similar to the Soviet Union, right? Yes, in, in, in a way, because, you know, th there, is this, uh, there is this idea, and a lot of governments do this, you know, we, th this, is, this is something that the U.S. government faces, but, you know, we have, we have elections to kick people out that say, no, no, these are, these are things you need to pay attention to. Um, but this is absolutely a problem. And, you know, the debt level in China specifically is is, is reached a level where, you know, I, I, I simply don't know how they're going to do it. You know, at some point there's going to be a correction um, on the Chinese economy. And I think it's going to be uh, quite severe uh, if, if, if it does happen uh, or when it happens, um, because the debt level is now at such a, at such a level that uh, they simply can't uh, avoid a major correction from that. Um, but that is the law of trade-offs, and they're going to push that as far as far down the road as possible. Right, and I, I think you talked about this in one of the articles you wrote before. Um, you know, behind the thoughts of Xi Jinping or the top leader uh, leadership of the party, essentially because they saw the demise of Soviet Union for, as you mentioned, not reining uh, reining in these uh, market factors, and that's that's what they are thinking, right? Yes, I mean one of the things is is that so first of all they are uh, they are terrified. Uh, I think she uh, Chairman Xi has made this very clear that basically they are terrified of any type of liberalization because they saw they see liberalization as what caused the downfall of the Soviet Union in 1989. So their entire strategy is basically to do the opposite. But they're also faced off with another trade-off that they've staked their entire credibility as leaders as as, as a as a governing body um, around uh, basically delivering for their people, delivering a rapidly rising uh, standard of living. And so I think they are also just as scared 
um, about uh, not delivering that, that rising standard of living. And so they continue to pump debt. And I think they internal in, are internalizing this by assuming that no matter what debt problems come, they they have the ability to solve those debt problems. I'm skeptical of, of that presumption. Do you think investors would perceive this deepening control as a risk, uh, Western investors? I do think they are. I mean, but again, Western investors, you know, we, we have this discussion almost every six months in China. Something happens and it's like, OK, now the Western investors are going to realize, you know, what they've really signed up for. And uh, and it doesn't really change. So I'm, I'm very, very skeptical that, you know, there's a lot of talk about this time. You know, there's a lot of the audit reports are, are being um, uh, auditors are basically backing out of their auditing reports, uh, refusing to certify them. Um, and so there's talk about, well, this time the Western investors are going to understand. Um, I, I really doubt that that is the case. I suspect that, you know, Western investors in China have an incredibly short memory so that they will probably forget within a few months. I mean, just to push that back on that a little bit, um, you know, as we speak, we're kind of seeing capital flow out from China. Well, now, the rate of which it isn't it hasn't reached pandemic levels. So what do you think it's behind this outflow? Well, I think I think there are two very, very significant differences between, you know, the, the outflows. Um, this is the, the outflows that we're seeing right now are primarily institutional investors that were invested in China uh, because of a share indexing. Okay. The previous outflows were Chinese citizens moving their moving their money outside of China. Um, so I do think there is a, a significant difference between the types of outflows uh, that that we're seeing these days. And so there, there's very very different very very big differences. Um, those outflows that we're seeing now um, very well could be flooding back in. You know, even in a month. Um, the ones that we saw earlier, Chinese citizens move their money out of China and that money has left China. It's gone. Okay. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's really not coming back for the most part. It's, it's bought a house in Sydney or Vancouver or suburban Los Angeles. Um, so I do think it's very important to distinguish between the types of outflows that we're seeing. So you think this is more of a, this could be, or is likely more of a temporary thing rather than a, a trend, let's say. I suspect as much, yes. Do you see any impact based on you know what we've been talking about, either the LME fiasco or the this outflow? Do you see any impact of this to the CCP's plans to internationalize the yuan, which is one of its major goals, I think, in terms of finance? I don't think it has any impact on internationalizing the RMB simply because the RMB is not internationalizing to begin with, and it's not going to internationalize anytime soon. Um, so. Uh, I don't think the LME has any real impact on on uh, on on that process or decision. So it's like you know, zero subtract zero is still you know zero basically. Exactly. There's there's basically zero chance of the RMB internationalizing uh, in in the any time in the near future, um, and so the LME is you know has no impact on the, on that decision. Do you think the United States can leverage some of the lack of loss of confidence um, based on, you know, we would describe as a very important, um, you know, kind of moment in this, uh, you know, China's interaction with Western market? Do you think there's anything the United States can leverage this moment in its 
financial or you know competition in general with China? So basically, I think you know New York and Chicago are best poised to do that. Uh, they have commodities markets uh, that. I'm sure could uh, roll out similar types of products. Um, New York and Chicago, I mean, they have much better trading infrastructure, to be honest, than the LME. Um, they have much greater liquidity uh, for those types of uh, things. Uh, there's a couple of unique reasons that that market grew up uh, in, uh, in London. Um, it's a, a lot of that trading is still done through what we call uh, open pit. Uh, so it's not even electronic. Um, so I do think if Chicago and New York wanted, and I suspect that there, there, I'm sure that there are groups of people within, uh, in Chicago and New York that are, you know, planning to try and say, okay, how do we get that business, um, that are, that are targeting that right now? Um, what becomes of that is, as, as I've said, too soon to tell. Um, but that would, that would absolutely be the way to go about that. So some would call this outflow as an indication that you know some of the western investors in china are kind of waking up to the realities to the political realities in that environment from a cold-eyed finance financial perspective um, is this the case or not 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 at the moment um because look you have you have bunches of firms that basically their audit their auditing firms are refusing to sign off on their audits and so institutional investors and in index funds uh, you know they simply can't hold those companies anymore okay and so indexes are probably dropping those companies um, other companies that are may, uh, uh, that are maybe holding those funds because they were in an index or something like that they're dropping those companies um, they're they're moving that money back to China um, because it's, it's it's very formulaic um, to be honest it's uh, it's something that you could probably set up on a complicated Excel spreadsheet um, so um, if those funds are effectively not having their audits done, um, you know, they, they basically are uninvestable. Um, so uh, foreign investors have to have to drop those firms. I mean, uh, there's pr probably very few circumstances where those funds, uh, where those companies can continue to be held by international investors. As a decoupling, I think it's still too soon to talk about that, generally speaking, um, because I think, you know, the, 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 bigger, the, the bigger question about financial decoupling is what is happening with the SEC. And China has been leaking stories that there's going to be an agreement struck with the SEC that allows them to keep their firms listed in the U.S. And uh, uh, Gensler yesterday, the head of the SEC, um, said there is no deal. It's, it's, it's not going to happen. Um, and so that's really the number one issue when you talk about uh, decoupling there. I, I wouldn't say the number one issue, but probably that would be one of the two issues that you're looking at when you're talking financial decoupling. And I think that is probably still two, two and a half years away. Um, uh, basically, they've given the, uh, some time back, they gave them a three year window like, you know, this is this is when you're, you're you get kicked off the exchanges. Um, and so that's, that's the key issue there. Um, and there's, there's a long way to go on that. That's the real, I, that's what I would put is the real, what, let's say marker of decoupling. And so I think one of the things that, you know, like Ukraine has, has really speeded up is a lot of companies are now looking at China going, wow, I actually do on multiple levels, uh, have a lot of political risk, uh, here in China. Um, my supply chains, um, 
so I think you're seeing a lot of interest in uh, in moving supply chains uh, to more reliable partners, whether that's Mexico, whether that's the United States, uh, whether that's India or Vietnam. Um, I do absolutely think there is a lot of interest in uh, shifting supply chains to where they can be more, you know, to more reliable partners. You know, technicality that we talk about in the future it actually looks like um, in terms of the psychology of decoupling, that people are actually, you know, shifting towards that direction. Um, I, I mean, it has been going on for some time. Absolutely. Um, it has been going on for some time. Um, but I think it's uh, over the past and there's multiple reasons for this, but I think it has kind of maybe stalled. It's not, it's not shifting as rapidly as it, as it could for lack of a better term. Um, but I think the, I think the interest in doing that is really, is, is really picking back up with a lot of the, with, with a lot of what we're seeing in the Ukraine. With that said, thank you very much, sir, for your time today. And, uh, you know, hope to have you back sometime. Absolutely. Hey, appreciate it, Gary.